we've been making our way through the book of Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk, uh, what we see is that Babylon is going to come and destroy Israel. They're going to come and, and tear down the walls, tear down the temple, and bring Israel into exile. And so Habakkuk, at the end of chapter 1, he asked the question, God, will, will wickedness and evil reign forever? Will it ever come to an end? And I think that's a good question. I think that's a question that, that you and I and the people like us, we ask today. Will there always be division, deception, wickedness, hatred, animosity, slander, murder, shame? Will there ever come a day when all, of, when all evil will be judged? Is there ever going to be a day when there will be no more wickedness on this earth? And here's the short answer. Yes, a day is coming. And we know that because all throughout the Bible, we read about God who is righteous and he sits on his throne to uphold justice. And so today we're going to be in a text and it largely looks at judgment, but it does so because our God is righteous and he's demonstrating his justice that one day there will be no wickedness. There will be no evil in this world. And so I encourage you to have your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 4 all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reaches of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him, he makes his righteous drink, who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your, and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and, and Father, we are looking at a judgment passage. 
And these are sometimes hard to understand and hard for us to want to hear. And so, Lord, I just pray for your, your spirit to be upon us right now, to give us wisdom, to give us humility. God, give us understanding. May we see your justice and righteousness, and at the same time, your grace and your goodness and your love and your mercy. May we be drawn to you, Father. Lord, I pray that any who do not know you, if they listen to this message, may they repent and believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. And for those who do know you, may, may our hope in you be increased because of your word today. May we long for the day that you return. May we look forward to our citizenship in heaven and dwelling with you for all of eternity. God, we praise you that you are a righteous king and that you uphold justice. In your name, Jesus, amen. Um, now, before we jump into our text, uh, what I want to show is that the judgment that we're reading about here in Habakkuk is actually a small glimpse of a much greater reality. You see, Babylon represents the kingdoms of this world that are opposed to the rule of God, to God's righteous rule. And I want to show this in three ways. First, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, we read about the Tower of Babel. Now, a lot of people miss this connection because the word Babylon is translated Babylon in the Old Testament over 200 times, but only twice is it translated Babel, and that's in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. But what we need to understand is that in Genesis 11, when all the people gather, they're building a city called Babylon, and in that city... They're building a tower which they're hoping will reach the heavens. And their hope and their desire is to dethrone God. This is a city bent on rebelling against the rule of God. So that's our first picture of Babylon in the Bible. Number two, as we make our way into the prophets like the book of Habakkuk, we read about an actual city called Babylon, which is coming to destroy the very people of God. So again, we have a city in rebellion against God's people and against God's rule. And number three, when we go to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we come across Babylon again. And in the book of Revelation, we see that Babylon represents all the world powers of this world in rebellion against God. In fact, this is what we read in Revelation 16, 19. We read that Babylon is a wicked city that will drink the cup of wrath of God. And in Revelation 18, 2, we read that Babylon is a house for demons and everything that is unclean. So, so what's the point? The point is, is that as we read about the judgment here in the book of Habakkuk, that's going to come, that's going to come upon the city of Babylon, and it actually does. In 539 BC, Cyrus of Persia will come and destroy Babylon. But this judgment is actually a picture of a much greater judgment that's going to come upon all the powers and all the rebellion and all the wickedness of this world one day when Christ returns. And so we need to see that there is a, uh, a present context to the book of Habakkuk, that there is a, a judgment that's coming on this Babylon, but it's really pointing us to a much greater reality that one day all wickedness and all evil will be judged. And so, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to make our way through these woes, um, these five woes, one at a time. But before the, we do that, I know that when we start talking about judgment, we often get uncomfortable. We get a little squeamish in our seats. Um, but I want you to think about it. Don't we desire justice? 
Don't we want the murderer to be punished? I mean, would you want to live in a country where there was no legal system, where there was no law, where there was no justice? Now, now why do we want this? Because in our very nature as humans, we desire justice. Now, why do we do that? Because we're made in the image of God. And we are told that God is righteous. We're told that God is just. And because we are made in his image, and even though we are sinful and fallen, there's a part of that that remains. And we have a desire for justice. But, but here's the problem. In our sinfulness, we don't want to be judged. We want justice out there, but we don't want to be held accountable for the way we live, for the, for the decisions and, uh, and the way that we live and what we do. And so uh, as we look at these judgments, we need to realize that this is speaking about a judgment that's going to come not just out there, but against all of mankind against us as well because we are sinful. And this judgment will fall upon all who do not know Jesus Christ. And so let's go ahead and look. We're going to turn and look at the judgments one at a time. We're going to begin in verses 6 through 9. And the first woe that we see is that every evil will be judged. Notice in verse 6, we read that Babylon has heaped up what is not his own. And then uh, we read that they have stolen from the nations. In verse 8, it says, Because you have plundered the many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. So this is what's happening. The plunderer will be plundered. Babylon has taken what is not their own, and his day is coming where the nations will rise up like creditors, and they will come to Babylon, and they will take back what is theirs. And, and in essence, we see this in 539, when Cyrus of Persia comes and destroys Babylon, and all that they once had now is taken from them. Now, oftentimes, people will say that because justice does not come right away, that they think that God's not going to bring it at all. And they say, how can God be just if he doesn't judge every evil right away? But, but that is not the case. It is not that God is unjust. In fact, in Revelation 18.6, read that Babylon will be repaid for all of her deeds. Uh, pay her back as she herself has paid others and repay her double for her deeds is what we read. Uh, so if God is just, then why does he not repay all evil right away. Why does he wait? And, and let me just say this. If God poured out his wrath on all sin immediately upon the sin being acted upon, then all of creation would have been destroyed back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, which means you and I would not exist. Um, the reason God does not punish all evil right away is because he's also gracious and he's good and he desires for you and I to repent and believe in him. In fact, this is what we read in Romans 2, 4. It says, do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Meaning, don't think that because God is patient, he's not going to judge. He's saying, never mistake God's patience for ignorance or impotence. Our God is fiercely just and he is radically gracious. And so here in, back, in our first woe, all sin will one day be judged. 
Number two, there is no evil that goes unnoticed. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Babylon has stolen goods from the nations. They, have, they think that they're successful in their wickedness. It says that they bring their plunder and they put it back uh, in their nest on high, meaning they think that they're secure. They think that they're safe. But look at verse 11. Notice what we see in verse 11. It says, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So what's happening here? What does it mean that the walls are crying out? What it means is that there's no evil that goes unnoticed. The very stolen goods themselves will cry out stolen to God. In fact, um, when I was younger, I went to the grocery store with my mom one time, and I, I stole a pack of gum. I'd asked for it. She said no, so I decided I was going to take it anyway, put it in my pocket. When we got home, I ran up into my room, and I put it under my bed in this uh, plastic fireman's helmet that I had. And so uh, my mom then enters into the room, and she says, you know, we need to clean your room today. So far, so good, no problem. And then she says, let's start with what's underneath your bed. And she grabs, the first thing she does is she grabs that red fireman helmet and she pulls it out and she sees that gum. I mean, it's as if the gum was crying out, stolen, stolen. And she went right for it. And so soon after that, we were on a trip back to the grocery store where I found myself apologizing to the manager for stealing gum. Uh, hear this. Our sins cry out to God. Now, now, we will commit great sin if we think that, we will, um, that it will go unnoticed, if we can get away with it. In fact, we read about that in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 7, the adulterous woman comes and she says to the man, Come, come lay with me. My husband is gone. You won't get caught. It's safe. She's tempting him on the basis of not getting caught. Listen, every sin cries out. And this is what we read actually in Romans 6, 27 and 20, or Proverbs 6, 27. It says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Just as you cannot touch fire without getting burned, so you cannot commit sexual immorality without getting caught. And even if your spouse doesn't know, your sin cries out to God, and he sees. Listen, in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel the prophet, he has this vision of God on his throne. And under the throne, we're told that there are four wheels. And on these wheels, it says, are covered with eyes, which is really kind of a weird picture, thinking wheels covered with eyes. But here's the point. God is on his throne, and he sees everything in all creation. There is nothing that he does not notice. In fact, we're told in Matthew 10, 29, that he even sees when a bird falls from the sky. There is nothing that escapes God's knowledge, nothing that he does not see. And know this, God doesn't just see your actions, what you do. He actually sees your heart and your mind, which means he knows about your anger, about your lust, about your grumbling, about your impatience. Now, perhaps you're addicted to pornography or maybe gambling. Perhaps you, you've cheated others out of money and you think that you are safe. You think that you have gotten away. You think that no one knows. 
But notice, even if no one else here on earth knows, your sin cries out to God. You are guilty before the almighty judge God himself. And just as Abel's blood, remember, Cain killed Abel, and we're told that Abel's blood cries out to God, so your sin cries out to God. But it's not just you. It's not just me that our sins cry out to God. All sins cry out to God. He sees everything on earth. He sees sex trafficking child molesters, every rapist. He sees murders, liars, and thieves. He knows every abusive husband and father. He sees every adulterer. He knows every dictator and oppressor. He sees the racist and the cheat. Look, don't turn a deaf ear to this. Like what we read in Psalm 11 says, God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. He will rain coals on the wicked Fire and, and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now you might be saying, that got dark. And that's a saying that we use in our house a lot, like that got dark. And, and in one sense, it is. In one sense, the justice and the, the might and the power of God is terrifying. But at the other moment, it is Good, and it is amazing and it is glorious. So think about this. Our God is not sitting back in his armchair ambivalent to what takes place here on earth. Rather, he is deeply concerned with his creation, with those who are made in his image. And he's saying, look, a day is coming where all wickedness will be judged. A day is coming when everything will be held accountable. A day is coming when, when all sins will be brought to light. Listen, our legal system may be flawed, but God's is not. Every sinner will stand accountable before God. Do you know that? You will stand accountable before God. And there will be no crime unpunished. And that takes us to our next point. Only the glory of, our, only the glory of God will remain forever. We see that in verses 12 to 14. In fact, look at verse 13. It read, we read that the people labor for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing. So, so what does that mean? It means that a day is coming where everything on earth will be burned. In fact, Jeremiah 51, 58 talks about this in regards to Babylon. This is what he says. He says, Babylon's wealth and power and accomplishments won't matter because she will be burned with fire. The people labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. Meaning all that she has done, all the power, all her wealth, all her accomplishments will not be able to save her on that day. And why will Babylon not be able to last? Why will all of Babylon be turned to ash? Because of what we read in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hear this. God's purpose in creation is not that we would build our own kingdoms and, and our own houses and satisfy ourselves with our own accomplishments and our own possessions. God created us with the purpose of knowing Him, of loving Him, of being in a relationship with Him, of living within His house and His kingdom. You see, God in His perfect and radiant glory created us so that we would share in His glory. He wants to lavish his goodness and his kindness and his mercy on us for all of eternity. This is why he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross. He sent Jesus 
so that he would come, die on the cross, so that we who believe in him would be forgiven. That our sins would be paid for and we would be given the very righteousness of God. Jesus died so that by believing in him, we would be justified, declared righteous. So that one day we would stand with God in his presence, enjoying his peace. In order for that to happen, Jesus came and stood in our place. So he would receive the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin. So that by trusting in him, we would be forgiven and receive his glory and his grace and his might and his power and his love and his peace. And what's crazy is God doesn't save us and then put us like in the slaves' quarters. Like there's not some tiered living system in heaven. Rather, we're told that he saves us and brings us into his own house and that we are heirs co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what we read in Romans 8. Or this is what we read in Revelation 3.21, that we will sit on the very throne with Jesus and God himself. Or in 1 John 3.2, it says that we will see Jesus when he returns because we will be made like him. Or in Romans 8.30, it says that when that God has saved us so that we would one day be glorified with him. Or in 2 Peter 1.4, it says that in Christ, we have become partakers of the very divine nature of God himself. Look, God in his extravagant goodness gives us everything in Jesus. He holds nothing back. So many people, they think, that God is like this cosmic killjoy, like he's this cranky police officer that just is on everybody and wants everybody to follow these rules and he just can't wait to write people tickets and to punish people. But when we come into God's word, we see anything but that. We see his kindness and his goodness and his justice and his mercy. He has created us so that we would have maximum joy. And that joy is found in his presence, which is only possible through the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's the problem. Because of our sin, we strive to find joy in anything other than God. We think that we can find it in our work, in our possessions, in our money, in, uh, in a spouse, in a relationship, in our kids. But what we read is that none of that will last uh, you know, I have three kids, and so um, I've seen this many times. If you have kids, you know this. Uh, when you give your children a present, sometimes, especially when they're young, they care more about the cardboard box that it comes in than the actual present. And in fact, the present kind of gets cast aside, and they're playing with the box all day, and you're kind of thinking, man, I could have just gone to Lowe's and bought a whole bunch of boxes and saved myself some money. And when kids do that, we say, well, well that's cute. Now, if, if a husband hands his wife a small box wrapped, and she opens it up, and in it are diamonds, you know, diamond rings or a necklace, or, 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 and she's more concerned, though, with the box than she is with the diamonds, I mean, you, it might just be crazy, or, or you might be the luckiest guy ever, and you never have to buy your, your wife diamonds, and you just buy her boxes all the time. It's probably not the case. You'd probably say, she's crazy. But when we, when we try to make much of the things of earth, rather than the gift of Jesus Christ himself, 
The Bible doesn't say that's cute. The Bible doesn't say that's crazy. The Bible says that's sinful. And it's because of that we deserve the very judgment of God because we are getting distracted by the cardboard boxes. We're getting distracted with other things in life than the true gift of God, Jesus Christ. And because of that, a day is coming. And what we're told is only that which is built upon the rock of Jesus will stand. Everything else will be burned. So let me ask you, have you trusted in Jesus? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know that you are a sinner and therefore under God's wrath? And here's, there's nothing you can do to work your way out of that. The only solution is the cross of Jesus Christ. That he came to die in your place so that by believing in him, you would be saved, forgiven, made righteous. So that when he returns one day, you would be gathered with him and enjoy the very presence of God for all of eternity and not experience the judgment of God. But if you don't, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you reject the free grace of Jesus Christ, then know this. And here's point four. Every citizen of Babylon will drink the Lord's cup of wrath. And we began this sermon by pointing out that, that Babylon represents the kingdoms of this world. And the Bible really says there's two kingdoms. You're either in God's kingdom or the world's kingdom. You're in Babylon. And what we understand is that because of sin, you and I, we are born in Babylon. Everyone is born in the city of this world, in the kingdom of this world. And therefore, we are under the judgment of God. But this is what Jesus did. When he goes to the cross, he drinks the cup of wrath of God. He drinks the punishment that you and I, we should have taken so that when we believe in him, that we could be forgiven. We could then be brought into God's kingdom, that we'd be given a new citizenship in heaven with God. But what we're told is if you reject Christ, then that means you reject what he did on the cross. And that means that you are still a citizen of Babylon and there is a cup for you to drink. For if you do not trust in Jesus who drank of the Lord's wrath, then you must drink of the Lord's wrath. And this is what we read in verse 16. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. We, we read the same thing in Revelation. Revelation 14.10. We're told that every citizen of Babylon will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb, which is Jesus. Hear this. Don't reject this truth. Your, your greatest problem is not the coronavirus. Age, health is not your biggest problem. Money is not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, everyone's biggest problem is that we are sinners under the wrath of God. And the pleasure of sin is but for a moment, but the judgment of God comes from an eternal God. What that means is that God's judgment will be the constant thunder and lightning upon all who reject Jesus. And because God lives forever, his wrath will forever torment, but never fully destroy. Do you understand that? Like, it's a forever crushing, but not destroying. Meaning, hell is not annihilation. Hell is not the absence of existence. It is forever existing in the full wrath of God. 
The only hope we have is Jesus Christ. So I, I urge you, trust in Jesus today. When we come across these passages of judgment, they're calling us, trust in the grace of Jesus. Know Jesus. Come to God. Experience His grace and His goodness. Because number five, the fifth woe, no idol will save you from the judgment of God. Look at verse 18. It says, what prophet is an idol? Now, what's an idol? An idol is anything that, uh, that we trust in and seek satisfaction in other than Christ, which means our family, our kids, money, our houses, our cars, our possessions can all become idols. Now, in and of itself, those things aren't bad. But they can never truly satisfy us. They're not worthy of our glory and honor and praise. They're not worthy for our lives to be centered upon. Um, back in the Old Testament, they actually made idols. And in the New Testament also. And we see this in other parts of the world. We don't see maybe people here in America actually making idols in, in the sense of what they did here in the Old Testament. Uh, but what they would do is they would take, uh, they would take wood, cut it down from a tree, and they would put gold on it or silver, and then they would, they would erect it in their house, and then they would bow down before it. And so God is showing the futility of that in verse 18. He says, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. He's saying, how foolish is it to make something, to erect it, and then to bow down before it? It can't talk. It can't speak. It can't hear. It can't do anything. Why would you bow down before it? And in reality, anything we worship other than God is the same thing. It's foolish, for it's not able to save us. It's not worthy of the glory and honor which God alone is. And so in verse 20, we are told that the Lord is the one who sits in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Let us not worship that which is silent, but let us be silent before the one who does speak, the one true God. You know, I listened to uh, a podcast I listened to. It's called The Briefing. I listen to it. I try to each day, Monday through Friday. It's by Albert Moeller. I encourage you, uh, if you're looking for a good podcast, it's about 25 minutes long on current events and a Christian perspective on it. Really, really good. And this last Friday, he, uh, he gave an illustration, and it was really helpful, and so I want to give it here. On May 10th, 1940, King George VI, he asked Winston Churchill to become the first minister, to become the prime minister of Britain. And in, that, and in essence, what he was doing, he was saying, Churchill, we need you to save us from the onslaught of Adolf Hitler. And so William Manchester, he wrote a biography on Churchill titled The Last Lion. And in it, he wrote how Hitler was the only one who would be able to save Britain from Hitler. And this is what he writes. It says, Like Adolf Hitler, said Manchester, he would have to be a leader of intuitive genius, a born demagogue in the original sense of the word, a believer in the supremacy of his race and his national destiny, an artist who knew how to gather the blazing light of history into his prism and then distort it to its ends, an embodiment of inflexible resolution who can impose his will and his imagination on his people, a great tragedian who understood the appeal of martyrdom and could tell his followers the worst hurling it to them like great hunks of bleeding meat, persuading them that the year of Dunkirk would be one in which it would be equally good to live or to die, who would, if necessary, be just as cruel, just as cunning, and just as ruthless as Hitler, 
but who could win victories without enslaving populations or preaching supernaturalism or foisting off myths of his infallibility or destroying or even warping the libertarian institutions in which he swore to preserve. Such a man, wrote Manchester, if he existed, would be England's last chance. And then he says this in his next line. In London, there was such a man. Hear this. If we're going to be saved from our sins, if we're going to enjoy the presence of God, if we're going to stand on that day when God comes, then we also, we need a man. We need a man who can stand before us or who can stand before God on our behalf. We need a man who can pay the price of our sin, who can take the full punishment of God's wrath and, his, and, and absorb his wrath so that we could be forgiven. We need a man who will save us, make us righteous, and bring us eternal security in Christ. We need a man who can uh, pour forth the very grace of God upon us. And who is that man? None other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one man who has come to stand between us and God, that he would be on a cross absorbing the wrath of God, that if we believe in him, we would be saved and forgiven and enjoy the presence of God. So I pray that you have trust in Jesus. If you have not believed in Jesus today, just as the sun rises and illuminates the day, so a day is coming when God's judgment will illuminate every sin, and all who do not know Jesus will be judged. But if we know Jesus, then we live with great hope. In fact, we persevere in hope as we await the return of Jesus. I just want you to think about this. In fact, 2 Peter 3 talks about how we live as we await the return of Jesus. He says that we are to live in all holiness and godliness. In Romans 12, Paul says that we are to love one another with brotherly affection, that we are to do what is honorable. And this is what he says in verse 19. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now he's not saying we, we don't care about law and legal systems today. But ultimately, we know that every sin will be brought before a holy and righteous God. And every sin will be paid for. It's either paid for at the cross or in eternity under the wrath of God. And so because of that, because of this truth, you and I, if we trust in Jesus, we are freed to serve those who curse us. We are free to love those who hate us. We are not the final judge. We know that is reserved for God alone. And therefore, we have hope in Christ and that we can proclaim the gospel in this world knowing it has the power to save tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar or it has the power to save persecutors and racists like Paul and everyone else. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has given us has the power to give life to all who believe. And so as we look at these judgment passages, as we look at the evil in this world, I want to encourage you that at least two things should happen in our hearts. Number one, let us proclaim the gospel of Jesus with greater zeal and with greater volume. Listen, we have the answer that the world needs. The world needs Jesus. You and I know that. And the chosen means of God in which the world will hear about Jesus is by you and I speaking the gospel. And so as we look at the evil in this world, and we know that a day of judgment is coming, and we know that we deserve that judgment, 
Only by the grace of God are we saved. Only by the grace of God will others be saved. Therefore, let us proclaim the saving grace of Jesus. And number two, let us long for the day that Jesus will return. And when we look at the evil in this world, let us be reminded of our true citizenship in heaven. Oh, there is a day coming when all sin will be judged and we will dwell with God in perfect peace, in perfect love, in perfect unity where there will be never wickedness or shame or murder or hatred or slander or any type of evil that exists again. And so let me, let me close by reading a little bit of the, of the Lord's Prayer. I just want to read the very beginning. Because the Lord's Prayer actually calls us to long for this day. It calls us to long, to hunger for the righteousness of God, to fill this earth, that there would be no wickedness or, or evil in it. And so in it, we read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To what we're praying for, God, rain down your righteousness. May your glory fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Our Father, oh Father, we praise you. You are a good and righteous king. And there is a day coming Oh, God, in which you will rain down justice. And Lord, that will be a terrifying day, and it will be a glorious day at the same point. So Lord, I pray that we would proclaim your gospel with great zeal. I pray that as we look at the evil in this world, we would proclaim with greater, with greater volume and zeal the saving grace of your son Jesus. And I pray that you'd use us, that people would be saved. Oh, God, may we go out. May we be bold in the gospel, knowing that the gospel has the power to give life. And Lord, may we be reminded as we look at evil, as we look at murder and anger and hatred and division and race, racism and, and all, all the things of wickedness in this world, may we be reminded of our citizenship. May we long for the day that you will return. And may on our lips be the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.